It's that time of year again. There's a nip in the air, the holidays are in full swing, and you are halfway through another academic year. And that means Absite 2022 is right around the corner. Fear not, Behind the Knife has got you covered. We've got over 28 high-yield Absite review episodes and our trusty companion book available on Amazon. Everything you need to dominate the Absite. Don't forget to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org where you can easily access all of our podcasts and videos, register for free CME, and sign up for the BTK newsletter. And be sure to keep an eye out for our comprehensive oral board review material, which is due out in early 2022. If you appreciate what we're doing here at Behind the Knife, please leave us a five-star review. Now, take a deep breath. You've got this. Today, we're covering critical care in a two-part series with Dr. Matthew Martin. Hope you enjoy and good luck with your studying. Well, let's dive into it. So we're going to we're going to talk about critical care. I'm sure everyone's favorite topic. Uh, we are not going to get into a, any high-level critical care. Really going to try and stick to, again, things you might get asked on the ab site and, and also try and focus on those buzzwords or, or scenarios that they tend to use and repeat and should trigger you to the answer. So, so we'll start off with uh, kind of a philosophical question. If you could pick any ventilator mode throughout the history of mechanical ventilation, which one would be the most physiologic mode of ventilation that, that recreates how you're breathing now? I'm not even going to pretend like I knew this and that we didn't just talk about this before we started recording, <laughs> but uh, I think you're going for the iron lungs, so you're creating a negative pressure yeah, the, uh, ventilator, the, ventilation mode. The good old iron lung. And then the principle there is is everything we do now is positive pressure ventilation, uh, which is a completely abnormal, non-physiologic way of breathing. Uh, so the way I think about it is, is we talk a lot about ventilator injury and lung injury, and, and every breath you get on a ventilator causes some degree of injury. So most of what we do is trying to minimize the amount of time or the other factors that cause injury on a ventilator. So, so let's just start with what are those factors that can cause a lung injury, a ventilator-induced lung injury? Uh, so you think of three factors. You have volume, uh, you have pressure, and then you have oxygen. Good. So there's volume, there's trauma from over-distending lungs with too much volume. There's barrel trauma from too much pressure, even if you're not getting a whole lot of tidal volume. And then there's oxygen toxicity. And so those, those are the three factors we really try and minimize when we do mechanical ventilation. Okay, so uh, they'll often ask about variables that affect oxygenation versus ventilation. So, so what are the variables that would affect oxygenation on a ventilator? Things that you can set or change. Uh, the one we know and love, uh, FiO2. Good. Is That's a... always the first one everyone gets. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, you have your uh, PEEP. Good. Positive in expiratory pressure. And then uh, mean airway pressure is the, the last. Good. And those are the three factors that affect ventilation generally. And if somebody's not, or oxygenation, if somebody's not oxygenating well, those are usually the first three factors we start to tinker with. How about the variables that affect ventilation? So first off, how do we assess ventilation? What's our, what's our measure from the blood gas that tells us the ventilation? Uh, we, we look at usually generally the PaCO2. Good. And so what are the variables that affect ventilation or, or that we would adjust on the ventilator? So you just think about things that would blow off CO2. So if you increase your, increase your respiratory rate or you increase your tidal volume. Okay. And if we multiply respiratory rate times tidal volume, what does that give us? Uh, that gives you your minute ventilation. Good. Those are, those are the main factors that drive the PCO2 and that you'll adjust if you have a PCO2 problem. 
Okay, so let's talk about some maneuvers we can do with the ventilator. Uh, so we talk a lot about peak airway pressure, uh, and then we also talk about plateau pressures. So first off, how do you obtain the peak airway pressure? Uh, the peak airway pressure, you do an inspiratory pause. Nope, that's plateau. You're close, though. So, so the peak is the one, the, the, every ventilator gives you the peak pressure. Okay. Right, so, so you, you just read it straight from the machine. You don't need any special maneuver. Okay. You look at the machine, and it tells you what the peak airway pressure is that okay. you're getting with that breath. So how do we get a plateau pressure? For a plateau pressure, you do an inspiratory pause. Good. And what does that do? It doesn't allow them to exhale. Um, and so then it measures the pressure at that the high level with the, with the volume, total yeah. volume in the lung. Yeah, so what that does is it gives them time to equilibrate the pressures throughout their airways in the alveoli. So the peak airway pressure can reflect your large airways uh, and sometimes won't reflect your alveolar pressure, which is really the more important number. So that's why we check a plateau pressure, which really better reflects alveolar pressure. And, and they'll often give you a scenario where you check a peak pressure and a plateau pressure and there's a huge difference. So let's say you, you check that, you've got peak pressures that are really high, they're 50. But you do a plateau pressure check and it's only 30. So there's a huge differential uh, between them. So what's your diagnosis? Uh, would the, the concern be for a large airway obstruction? Good, a large airway obstruction or? Maybe a main stem, I'm not. So, so it'd be something that affects generally the, the bronchi so bronchospasm okay yeah so that's the patient who's having bronchospasm now if you get a peak airway pressure and a plateau pressure and they're pretty close you know you get a peak airway pressure of 50 and a plateau of 45 um i mean i'd be concerned of things such as abdominal compartment syndrome um well, we're, we're going to stick with they have some lung process. Lung pathology. Yeah. Um, so, so this is the patient who has alveolar lung disease. So that's, right. this is the ARDS or, or other patient that is, that is truly having restrictive lung disease. So this is how you figure out, are, are my peak airway pressures real? Something to, I need to be concerned about? You know, the alveoli are being exposed to this? Or is this another problem like bronchospasm or a large airway obstruction? And so, so you already mentioned the inspiratory pause, and right next to that button, there's a button for expiratory pause. And do you know what you would use that button for? I do not. So, so that would be to check a NIF or a negative inspiratory force. And again, those are always, always favorite easy questions. Okay, so we talk about different ventilator modes and, and the pros and cons of them. So let's start with uh, CMV, continuous mandatory ventilation, or also called assist control. Um, why don't you tell us about this ventilator mode? Uh, so you set a rate and a volume, and uh, it just continually gives that rate and that volume um, indefinitely. Okay, and if the patient triggers a breath on their own? Does it give them a fully supported breath or does it not? It does give them a fully supported breath. Yeah. So what are some of the problems you can run into with this mode of ventilation? Uh, you can get barotrauma. Um, Good, because you're setting the volume, so it'll deliver that volume no matter what the pressure is. But what about the fact that every time they initiate a breath, it's going to give stacking. them a fully supported breath? Is that yeah, stacking, but also hyperventilation. hyperventilation right? You have a patient who's anxious, tachypnic, and a lot of pain, and they're doing that rapid, shallow breathing, but the machine's giving them 500 cc's every time. Those are patients who can get major respiratory alkalosis pretty quickly. 
and that's a volume control mode where we set a tidal volume and whatever pressure we get is what we get. And you already mentioned the problem that you can get high peak airway pressures. Um, now let's talk about pressure control. So this mode is where we set a peak pressure and we get whatever tidal volume we get on that pressure. Um, so this is also a mode where it supports every breath, so you can get the same problems if the patient's tachypnic, but what's the advantage or, and disadvantage of this mode versus assist control? The advantage is you can limit the barrow trauma because it'll only give up to a certain pressure. Good. So if you set a pressure of 40, those airways aren't going to see more than a pressure of 40. Uh, the disadvantage is, is you can have inadequate ventilation. Yeah, and, and what's the patient that that would happen to? ARDS? Yeah, so the patient who you're ventilating on pressure control, they're doing fine, but then they're developing ARDS, so their lung compliance is getting lower and lower, which means they're getting less tidal volume with every breath you're giving them. Um, so that's the person who you can now hypoventilate and, and run into major respiratory or acidosis problems. Okay, and then SIMV, which is probably one of our most common modes. Um, so how's this? It's a volume control mode. You set a, a rate and a tidal volume. So how's that different than assist control? It allows you to uh, draw in a certain volume based on your effort. Yeah, so, so if you take a spontaneous breath above the set rate, it does not support that with a full tidal volume, right? So the patient is more breathing on their own. Uh, and then the S is for synchronized, right? So oh, it also right. it synchronizes, it tries to synchronize those breaths with the patient's normal respiratory effort. Okay. So it's, it's typically a more comfortable mode of breathing. Um, and any problems you can run into with SIMV? Could you also get the uh, hypoventilation in these patients? Yeah, you can because remember, it's not so. If they're breathing above your set rate, it's right. not supporting those extra breaths. But also, remember the patient's having to work really hard on those extra breaths. Okay. So this is this is a mode where if you're not supporting them adequately and they're not strong enough, that they can really tire out. Uh, trying to take those extra breaths that are not supported. If they're breathing at the rate that is set, um, initiating you know close to, mm -hmm. um, will it su support any of those? Or yeah, it, it'll synchronize. So if you set a rate of twenty and the yeah. patient's breathing at a rate of twenty, it will synchronize that patient and okay. it'll give them twenty breaths a minute. Okay, at whatever tidal volume you set. At whatever tidal volume you okay. set. If the patient's breathing at a rate of twenty-five. It'll give them 20 supported breaths, and then those other five are completely unsupported. Okay, we like to talk about extubation criteria. So, so first off, what's our basic principle for the ICU for evaluating patients for extubation? And it used to be we would kind of eyeball them every day and say, ah, they're too sick now, eh, they might not be ready, and then we'd get around to doing a spontaneous breathing trial. So at 5 a.m. or whatever set time, every patient undergoes a spontaneous breathing trial. Yeah, so spontaneous breathing trial every day, every patient, except for, you know, the patient who's unstable, who's having worsening pulmonary status, that you're having to increase their support. Every other patient should get a spontaneous breathing trial every day, and that markedly improves your extubation rates. Okay, so, so we talk about looking at as a patient ready for extubation. So what are some of the criteria we might use to decide if they are or are not ready? Right, they have to be neurologically intact um, and able to respond um, to you so you know that they can protect their airway when they are extubated. Okay. Um, their vent settings have to be minimal, um, you know, generally a peep less than seven or so. Um, 
really five is kind of what we aim for. FiO2 generally of 30% or less um, is what yeah, I've seen. Yeah, and I think the basic principle there is they need to be on settings that you can give them off the ventilator. Right. So generally an FiO2 of less, definitely less than 50, uh, you know, a PEEP of less than 10. So something you can give them even when they're off the vent. And then what's our, what are our best parameters for predicting extubation? Um, so you can have your rapid shallow breathing index. I guess it's also called the Tobin index. Good. Um, and so you take their respiratory rate uh, divided by their tidal volume. And if it's less than 100, um, this is one indicator that they are, have a good chance at successfully extubating. Good. And, that, and that's probably when they give you a question about what's the best predictor, that's it. Okay. It's, the, it's the respiratory rate divided by tidal volume, also called the Tobin index, also called the rapid shallow breathing index also called the frequency tidal volume ratio, which that's how I use it because it tells me my formula <laughs> if I forget which one goes on top <laughs> or the bottom, frequency tidal volume ratio. Okay, and generally, if it's the, the studies were, I think it was less than 120, but generally I say if it's less than 100, and the closer to 100, the more worried you are, the further down from 100, the better they are for extubation. And then we just mentioned you use that expiratory hold button to check a NIF. So what does a NIF tell us? Um, that's the pressure they're able, the negative pressure they're able to generate in their lungs uh, to see if they can, uh, their muscle strength to draw breath in. Yeah, and, and this, this is not a great predictor for success. It's a reasonable predictor of someone who's going to fail. So if, they, if they're with it and cooperating and they can't get a negative inventory force of greater than 20, that generally is a decent predictor of failure, but getting a NIF of more than 20 isn't a great predictor of success. I would still use the frequency tidal volume ratio. Okay, so let's talk about ARDS. And we used to talk about ARDS and acute lung injury, um, but there's been a significant change in the definition for ARDS. And, and what's that new definition called so the berlin definition of ards uh, or the berlin criteria that replaces the old american european consensus conference it breaks down ards into mild moderate and severe and so what did we get rid of what terminology do we get rid of acute lung injury yeah so there's no more acute lung injury it's now all ards and like you said we categorize it as mild moderate and severe uh and how about the timing so the timing is the same as before, um, generally a short acute onset with like within one week of a known clinical insult. Good. And characteristic chest x-ray findings, just like the old definition. Now the old definition, you needed a certain wedge pressure. You needed a wedge pressure of less than 18 to tell you there wasn't cardiogenic edema. So do we still use that? Uh, given the fact that we uh, do not place swans routinely anymore, uh, we do not use that as a criteria. Okay. So what do we use then to tell that it's not cardiogenic edema? Um, so you can look uh, for a patient to see if they have evidence of fluid overload, and then uh, you can use an echo to help uh, determine that. Good. So it's, now it's really a clinical decision. Yeah, if there's no signs of, or reason for pulmonary edema, or usually we'll just get an echo. And then we, we categorize it into mild, moderate, and severe based on the P to F ratio. And so where, do, where are those cutoffs? And this is very easy now. Right. So for mild, um, it, ARDS begins when your PaO2 divided by your FiO2 is less than 300 but greater than 200. Um, for moderate, it's uh, less than 200 to greater than 100. And for severe, if they have a uh, PaO2 over FiO2 ratio less than 100. Um, and all of these patients are on PEEP at least of 5 
Good. Yeah, so PDF less than 100 is severe, 100 to 200 is moderate, and 200 to 300 is mild. And that's the New Berlin definition. I'd be surprised if that did not show up on the ab site. Okay, so general principles of the patient with ARDS. So if, if I were, you're going to get a question that says, how do you want to ventilate this patient who's got ARDS? What's the answer going to be on the test? Uh, so the, the lung protection protocols, Good. so low tidal volumes. Okay, um, so what's a low tidal volume? Six to eight. Okay, yeah, and actually the ARDSNET study is four to six. So, so I, usually the answer is six cc's per kilogram for tidal volume. How about the PEEP? High PEEP, low PEEP. So there was a high versus low PEEP trial, and actually they showed no difference. We, we used to say all these patients needed to be on high PEEP above 20. Now the, the PEEP just needs to be adjusted to keep the alveoli open. Okay, so you have a patient with ARDS, and this is their blood gas. 7.24, PCO2 is 70, PO2 is 70. What would we do now with the ventilator? Well, your oxygenation in this uh, case is actually okay. Good. They're, uh, okay. Ac they're a little bit acidotic. I, I, the permissive acidemia in this ca case is, is permitted as long as you're able to oxygenate them. Yeah, so, so generally as long as the pH is above 7.2, we let the CO2 run where it's going to run. It's called permissive hypercapnia. And I think the message here is you don't want to start increasing their tidal volume, increasing their respiratory rate, giving them more ventilator-induced lung injury for no good reason. So, so we, don't, we don't titrate the numbers just to make them look like a normal person. So high CO2 is acceptable. Now you've got this patient who's failing. They're failing conventional ventilation. And we talk about salvage therapies for ARDS. So yeah. what are some of our salvage therapies? Yeah, so th this is where we can uh, try some uh, different adjuncts with the ventilator, also um, uh, giving them different... Uh, things through the ventilator. So different salvage ventilatory settings would be uh, high-frequency uh, oscillatory ventilation. Uh, there's also APRV. Uh, Good. And, uh, and then you can look at uh, positioning such as proning. There's, there's actually some evidence on uh, improved uh, mortality with proning. And then uh, there's heliox uh, or, or nitrous oxide uh, as well. Uh, uh, therapies that are directed towards shunting uh, blood to areas that airways are, are exchanging oxygen. So, Okay, good. And what are the treatments that now have a proven benefit in prospective randomized trials for the patient who, you know, they're not oxygenating well with your conventional low tidal volume ARDS ventilation? And, and there's really two. You mentioned one. Uh, yeah, I mentioned the proning uh, Good. So, already. So proning, proning has been now been shown in a randomized trial. Um, and, and again, I'd be surprised if that wasn't a question. That's definitely a fair game question. And that will improve your P to F ratio. It'll improve your oxygenation. Um, there's one other medication now that we would give, especially let's say the patient's just having dyssynchrony with the vent. Yeah, so um, one proven is, is actually paralyzing the patient. Good. Neuromuscular blockade. So, so if they give you a patient who's not doing great in, in ARDS and they say, you know, what would you do next? The answer is either going to be proning or neuromuscular blockade. And, and they won't give you both of those choices. So, so whichever of those choices is in the question, that's the one. So you mentioned APRV, and, and, and I know they like to ask some questions about APRV. 
So, so let's real quickly talk about APRV because it's it's a different mode of ventilation. So, so what is APRV and how do we generally initiate it? I knew you were going to ask uh, what APRV is, and I honestly don't remember what it stands for. Airway pressure release ventilation. Great. Uh, the um, the way it actually works is that you you maintain a certain pressure to to keep the alveoli open, uh, and the patient is then allowed to breathe over that high pressure. So uh, there will be a sustained uh, pressure to keep those airways open. The patient will then breathe over that pressure uh, as best that they can, and then it will release uh, to to allow them to release the the uh, after essentially the exchange has happened to get rid of the CO2. Okay. So so a way to think about this or people talk about it is super CPAP. And and you mentioned the patient breathing over it, and I would keep that separate than the primary mode of the ventilation is, is you're giving very long inhalation periods to open up the airways, and then you give them a very short period where the pressure drops and they're allowed to exhale. And, and they're never allowed to exhale down to zero because you want to maintain some PEEP. So, so it's essentially inverse ratio ventilation. They have a long inspiratory time, and then you give them a very short pressure break, and it drops down. And those numbers that you set, you set the, the pressure high and the pressure low, and then you set the time at that high pressure and then the time at that low pressure. And, and so generally you want to have a long T high, usually about four to five seconds, and then a short T low, usually about half a second. So, so for five seconds it keeps them inhaling at that high pressure and then it drops the pressure for that 0.5 seconds so reverse IDE ratio ventilation and the, the the way this is different than you could do this with a pressure control ventilator right? you could set up the high pressure and do inverse ratio the way this is different is as you mentioned the patient can breathe spontaneously throughout this cycle uh, and that's what makes it different than pressure control and, and this has become a popular salvage mode from ARDS so let's move on now to sepsis. And we were just talking about this. There, there are a couple things that have, that have changed, had major changes over the past year and a half, um, and that are being incorporated into tests like the ab site. So, so sepsis is one of those. So we can talk about the old definition and the new definition. So what was the old sepsis definition? So uh, the old definition is everybody is always memorized and it's always tested as the, the Sears criteria. Good. So, so uh, sepsis, the old definition was you had Sears plus a uh, source or Sears plus a known infection, and then you were said to be septic. Okay. Um, and then we would have severe sepsis and septic shock. Yeah, so severe sepsis would be when you would have, you know, sepsis. So you'd have SIRS plus a source plus end organ dysfunction. And then septic shock would be um, all of that uh, plus um, uh, end organ dysfunction and hypotension despite uh, fluid bolus. Good. Hypotension or, or pressor requirement. So, and, and the general principle is the old definition focused on inflammation, which was the surge criteria. We now have the new sepsis definitions. It's called sepsis three. And what's the new sepsis three definition? 
So the new um, sepsis three is is so SERS is gone. We're not going by the SERS criteria Good. anymore. So we don't talk about SERS anymore. So now we focus more on organ dysfunction and particularly the SOFA score. Um, so if you have if you score greater than two on your SOFA or your quick SOFA, um, then you're said to be septic. Good. And so SOFA, for anyone who doesn't know, that is the sequential organ failure assessment. So the new sepsis definition focuses on organ failure uh, with an infection. And, and so the definition now of sepsis is if your SOFA increases by two or more points. Now, what if you have a patient coming from home? So obviously, you didn't have a SOFA on them but, you know, before they came in. And they're in the ED now with sepsis. Or what you think is sepsis? Um, well, I, I think it's still. I think it's still if they have a score greater than two, um, and and they have a source or yeah. any- so. So someone you don't ha- someone who wasn't in the hospital already, you don't have a baseline SOFA score. Their score is zero. So, so so a score of two or greater for that patient is sepsis. And then how about septic shock? So septic shock is uh, now going to be defined as a patient who is requiring pressure support for MAPS uh, to keep their MAPS greater than 65 or who has a sustained uh, lactate greater than 2 uh, despite getting adequately resuscitated. Yeah, and it's, and it's not or, it's and. So it's a, it's they need vasopressors to keep their MAP above and they have a lactate yeah. of greater than 2 after their volume resuscitation. That's considered septic shock. And then how do we manage sepsis? This is the other thing that's changed. And probably everyone's familiar with early goal-directed resuscitation. And, and if you had to summarize your goal for early goal-directed resuscitation of sepsis, what was the main goal you would resuscitate towards? Uh, it was typically a volume status and uh, that was determined typically by a, a CVP of, of 15. So that's, that's how you start, but that was the early in the, in the uh, routine group. That was the same in both of them. What was the factor that was added to the early goal-directed resuscitation that made it early goal-directed resuscitation? So they all got volume. They all got antibiotics. What was added? Or what's the factor in early goal-directed resuscitation? And your hint is you need a central line. So this is uh, when we're getting uh, CVO2s. Yeah, and so cent- central CVO2s. venous O2. So the thing that was added is you resuscitate to a CVO2 of greater than 70. And that in the Manny Rivers trial showed a survival benefit. What's happened now? <laughs> now in 2017. Is that how we, uh, is, that our, is that our goal now? Uh, no, generally we're able. To, we, we tolerate less. We don't. We're not generally transfusing. We're not being as aggressive with uh, with uh, with volume resuscitation. Yeah. So so what happened is more, is is two or three big randomized trials yeah. came out in the past three years that actually showed with modern sepsis management there was no benefit of that early goal directed approach over a standardized sepsis bundle approach. So, so now the new way of resuscitating these patients is not based on a CVO2, which is nice because we don't need a central line. Um, so what do we base it off of? We, we, we generally, we have a three-hour and a six-hour kind of bundle and goals that we go by. So let's start with the initial one is within three hours, we want to do what? 
Uh, so within three hours, certainly start antibiotics. You want to make sure you draw cultures before you administer your antibiotics. Good. Uh, you're trending your lactate and you're guiding your resuscitation uh, a lot more based on lactate. So you're bolusing fluids for hypotension or for elevated lactate levels. Good. So the first thing you want to do is check a lactate, get blood cultures before the antibiotics, give broad spectrum antibiotics, and then we want to bolus them if their lactate is above four. And what do we bolus them with? Uh, so we bolster them with uh, generally um, uh, crystalloid. At what volume? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, so 30 cc's per kilogram. Yeah. And so that, that try to get to a CVP of 15 is also gone because, again, you don't need a central line for this. And then within six hours... So within six hours, if you're not meeting your goals, you want to start. You definitely want to start uh, pressors uh, for to maintain your maps for septic shock. Good. Uh, you want to look at uh, you know tissue perfusion, volume status, you know based on your um, end stage organ failure, and then you want to again tr- focus on your lactate and guiding your resuscitation towards your lactate. So yeah, trend so, those. So if the initial lactate was elevated, you should have a repeat, and that should be done within six hours. And, and that would be considered the current gold standard for sepsis resuscitation. So now you've got this patient who their MAP is 60 after the 30 cc's per kilogram, and their lactate is 3. So what's your diagnosis? Septic shock. Good. And what do you want to do for them? Start pressors. Good. And what presser? Uh, generally go with the nor- uh, norepinephrine or levofed Good. as a first-line agent. Good. Yeah, that's, that is now clearly recommended over dopamine. And then we'll say the patient's still hypotensive, and you want to add a second presser. Uh, so, it, you know, generally, if you're coming, if you're up on your levofed and you're adding a second presser, uh, vasopressin is usually the one that I would go for. Um, Good as a second line to add yeah. in addition. And, and the current recommendations are either epinephrine or vasopressin when you have to add a second presser. Uh, vasopressin alone is recommended against. And how about an inotropic agent? Um, I don't think so, unless they have heart failure. But if you have to add an inotropic agent oh, for sure. cardiac output, what would your choice be? You, you would use dobutamine. Good. Dobutamine, and, and the recommendation is up to 20 mics per kg per minute. And they generally won't ask you doses, but they, they will ask about pressors. So as long as they're going to ask about vasoactives in the ICU, let's just run through the vasoactives that they'll ask about. And, and all we want to know is what's the mechanism or the receptor it acts on, uh, and, and only really want them, you need to know anything about dose. So let's start with dopamine. So what's the mechanism of dopamine? And this is the one where it's, it's really dose-dependent. So we talk about low, mid, and high-dose dopamine. So low-dose dopamine affects what? Receptors. Uh, I believe that receptors. Right. The dopaminergic receptors in the, in the kidney more in the low dose. Good. And then medium dose? I believe medium dose is uh, more heart, so you're going to have more uh, beta than alpha Good. in that situation. And, and generally beta 1. And then high dose? Uh, that's going to be more of your vasoactive, so more alpha. That's alpha. One. Good. How about levofed? Levofed is also more alpha, uh, but it does have some minimal effect on the beta adrenergic. Good. Beta 1 mostly. Beta 1. How about epinephrine? So beta, or epinephrine is uh, usually the way I think about it is equal between uh, equally active alpha and beta and beta 1. Good. Again. So epinephrine has more beta 1 effect, so it'll have more inotropy effect than, than levofed. Phenylephrine? That's purely alpha. Okay. When would we use this? This is uh, a patient that you just need uh, peripheral uh, 
Yeah, if they're asking you a question on the ab site and the answer is phenylephrine, what's your diagnosis? There's really there's really only one scenario. That would be neurogenic shock. From? Typically from a spinal cord that's transection. A, yeah, spinal cord injury is the only time in the ab site you'll be answering phenylephrine. And the complication of it is unopposed alpha vasoconstriction. That's the one where you start it on the septic patient and their fingers start turning blue and falling off. Okay, how about vasopressin? So vasopressin acts on the vasopressin receptor. Which one? Uh, it, v, V1, I Good. believe. Good. V1 receptor. That's your answer. Dobutamine. So dobutamine is, is again, uh, more beta-adrenergic. Uh, beta-1 beta one or one. beta-2? Typically beta-1. Good. Uh, as we mentioned, it's, it's a good uh, drug for those patients exhibiting some cardiac failure. So it will increase your cardiac output. Yes, now, what's a, a side effect of dobutamine or, or someone you might not want to start it on? What will it do to your blood pressure in general? Oh, they, they can get... Uh, hypotensive, actually. Yeah, because it has some vasodilatory effects. So someone who's already hypotensive, you know, you might want to consider or at least get their blood pressure up before you start it. And then milrinone. That's always a favorite one, too, even though it's probably the least common one we would use. So I think milrinone works through uh, the um, phosphorylation pathway. Close. Phosphodi- phosphodiesterase inhibitor. Good. Uh, which, which acts more peripherally. Uh, on on vessels, okay, for, to but, increase blood pressure. But what's the effect of milrinone? And it's not to increase blood pressure. In fact, a side effect of it is it decreases blood pressure, right? So what, what do you use milrinone for? But it's a good ionotrope. So what will the effect be? Uh, you're going to have increased uh, CAMP, mm-hmm. and uh, then you're actually going to get vasodilatation from that. Okay, but what is the physiologic effect of milrinone going to be? What are you doing it for? Increasing cardiac output? Yeah. So so consider it like dobutamine. Uh, it just acts by a different mechanism. Uh, and the side effect, like dobutamine, will be hypotension. And and it does increase cyclic AMP, which uh, I've had a couple times on the boards as a question about milrinone. Okay, so let's talk about diagnosis and monitoring for this septic patient. Um, and there's some, some new labs that we have available now. So bacterial sepsis, you already mentioned we want to definitely check blood cultures before antibiotics. Uh, are there any other labs that we're using now to guide sepsis diagnosis and therapy? So, yeah, now uh, frequently in ICUs we're sending off the procalcitonin, okay. uh, which if it's elevated, um, it uh, is indicative of having a bacterial infection. Okay, good. And how else do we use it? So... So let's say you have a normal procalcitonin in a patient who you were wondering if they were septic. Oh, so we, we can use it uh, to make the decision whether or not to stop antibiotics? So, Good. Yeah. That, that's, probably, that's probably the most useful thing about procalcitonin is you can use it when it normalizes. It can be a guide to stop antibiotics. But in the patient where you're using it as an initial test, it's more valuable as a negative mm-hmm. test. So if it's normal, then you probably have ruled out sepsis if it's elevated it can be elevated with sepsis it can be elevated with severe trauma Mm -hmm. etc so it's less useful just as telling you know me does this patient have sepsis but it's good for ruling it out and it's good for stopping antibiotics you're saying it's more sensitive than it is specific yes okay uh invasive candidiasis 
There are, obviously, we'll do fungal cultures, but there are some new labs that we can check uh, in the ICU. Any, uh, any new assays that might show up on the boards? Yeah, so I'm less familiar with these, but there's like a beta-glucan assay. Yeah, so there's a 1,3 beta-D-glucan assay, and then there's another antigen and antibody pair you can send. So... Uh, and so mannin and anti-mannin antibodies. Yeah, so mannin antigen and anti-mannin antibodies. And, and those actually are, are becoming more standard for diagnosing invasive candidiasis because we all, we all know the problems of cultures for fungal infections. Take a very long time. Yeah, and they take a long time. They can be inaccurate. You can be colonized. And the, these labs generally tell you if it's an infection versus colonization. Okay, let's talk about some sepsis therapies. Stress dose steroids. Where are we with stress dose steroids? So with stress dose, dose steroids, uh, you know, I, I think we're getting away from doing this, you know, doing the stim test. So if you suspect it and you have, uh, you know, presser resistant or presser refractive uh, shock, you're just empirically treating, um, generally treating with uh, hydrocortisone. Good. Yeah. So so really no more ACTH stim tests. We base it on clinical measures. If the patient is septic uh, with resistant septic shock, you can add it. Generally, you want to give 200 milligrams a day of hydrocortisone. Um, how about tight glucose control? There, there was a, a paper on tight glucose control, and everyone started shooting for a glucose of 80 to 110 I in the remember, ICU. If I remember. That was a nice paper. I yes. Think. Very clever. Yes. And what do we do now? Uh, so now we're shooting for you want you know adequate glucose control, but so less than 180 is generally what we shoot for. Yeah, so the 120 to 180. So we no longer do tight glucose control. In fact, it was associated with worse outcomes in several of the more recent trials. Uh, how about activated protein C? We we started giving this to everybody who had severe sepsis. Uh, yeah, and we didn't like the results, so we took it off the market. Yeah, so that, no that now indicated. is no longer indicated. They'll often throw that in as one choice, and, and that is an easy one to – it's like factor seven for trauma. If you see pro activated protein C, that's a wrong choice. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day. Dominate the day.